Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. On tonight's show, I will be continuing my talk with Brother Richard from last week, although it's not the same subject. We recorded a whole extra show of just questions for Brother Richard that patrons had submitted. We're going to talk about spirits, meditation, angels, relics, the capuchin crypts, monks' robes, saints, and much more. We'll get to that in a minute. I'd like to thank our patrons. We could not make Strange Familiars without our patrons. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your help. If you like what we do and you'd like to get more Strange Familiars, you can become a patron at Patreon, help us make the show, and get extra content besides. All of our patrons get commercial-free versions of the show weekly and two extra episodes of Strange Familiars exclusive to our patrons every month. To become a patron or to check out more, you can go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. All right, I'm going to ask once more to extend my Christmas present of not commenting on the clicks in the interview with Brother Richard. This is the same interview, the same recording. We just broke it up into two parts. So there is some clicking. I've done my best to edit it out, and Soraya has helped me. So thank you once again, Soraya. But I'm aware it's there. I did my best to make it sound as good as I could. It's always worth listening to any sonic imperfections to get to Brother Richard. So without further ado, here we go. Well, welcome back, Brother Richard. Here we go again. We have a... Happy to be here. Various questions. These questions... All came from patrons on Patreon, except I think one. I think Octavian sent me his. Right. And may I compliment your questioners? The level of questioning just shows the intellectual rigor and vast field of interest that's within the Strange Familiars community. Yeah, they were 
fantastic. Each one, I was like, wow. So the, coming from Marsha A., our first question, do disincarnated spirits have agency? Do they need a body to manipulate people and objects or cause harm? Well, first of all, disincarnated spirits, we're speaking of spirits who at one stage had a body. Uh, that's the definition of, of that. So these would be human beings who have now passed beyond. In that sense, no, they do not need a body for agency. When we are separated from the body at death, the spiritual part of us still has agency. It can influence matter and it can influence the material field. So they don't actually need a body to work through. But what we find where ghosts and hauntings are concerned and things like that is that they will often draw energy, for want of a better word, from living physical beings. And so one of the things we often look for if we're called out to a haunting is to see has there been an appreciable change in people's emotional well-being or physical well-being. Mm. Some of the signs of it, and again, I'm always careful naming signs because for the vast majority of times, the signs are simply, you have a cold, you're sick, you live in a damp house. You know, like you need to be really, really careful and practical. But some of the, the signs particularly to watch out for are a pull or drawing on the lower back, particularly around the kidney areas, headache, and especially irritability. So you'll find people who've been getting on really well, lovely family, lovely partnership, whatever it might be, and suddenly they're tearing pieces out of each other and they don't really know why. That can be very often, if there is a genuine haunting there, which is rare, but if there, if there is a genuine haunting there, it can be stirring things up so as to draw off that energy and then use that energy in explosive haunting them. Speaking of spirits uh, being able to manipulate objects and so forth, I'm reading a very fascinating book on accounts of the poor souls, so the souls from purgatory mm. that were appearing to this, uh, I guess you could call her visionary from, yes, from yeah. Germany. And one of these spirits, is, you know, she asks it what's troubling it, and it says it's, it is burning and it touches her and leaves a burn mark on her, which her priest actually observed this mark. Mm. And just doing some quick research, there are other, you know, saints and mystics and so forth who said they've been visited by souls from purgatory and they, they've left burn marks. Mm. There's actually a museum in Rome, in Vatican City. It's a small museum, but it's the Museum of the Poor Souls. If you Google it, you'll see photographs of books and furniture, etc., where the souls, in order to prove that they had been there, placed their hand or drew crosses on things, and they were burned into the wall or into the wood. So, yeah, the two principal spiritual or, or two principal physical energies that are nearest to the spiritual energies are heat slash light, uh, cold slash water. And so the spiritual beings are, are very, very near those elements. Uh, and so it becomes very easy to kind of um, bring those elements across the threshold into the physical world. I believe it was photos from that museum that I did see when I was kind of looking it up. Really oh, interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff, yeah. So Steve H. asks, uh, well, first he says, I love Brother Richard's unique perspective and savor every <laughs> Brother Richard episode. So don't we all? Thank you very thank, much. Thank Great you for time. being here. I wonder, does Brother Richard have any insight into spiritual opposition? For example, each time I have felt drawn to sign up for Reiki training, I will have all kinds of bizarre mishaps crop up leading to the event. The morning mm -hmm. of my first Reiki training class, I had two separate plumbing issues arise in my house that had to be addressed. And in the midst of that, I got a notification that my bank debit card had been compromised, had to be canceled. It all worked out, but there are times like these when the volume of the resistance and opposition is unusually great. And the timing of it all happened leading up to a spiritual endeavor that I take pause and have to wonder what is going on. This doesn't sound unlike what we were talking about with guardian angels before. No, no, I, I suppose there's careful discernment needed here. 
because the question becomes, is it, well, there's, there's three possible things happening. The first is that your own unconscious is manifesting opposition to something. Mm-hmm. And uh, therefore, you need to sit with that yourself and decide, is there something unconscious going on that I'm not aware of, you know, that maybe is saying to me that this isn't the best for me at this particular time. In terms of spiritual beings or spiritual energies causing opposition, you have the possibility of the angelic opposing to try and protect you from something or the negative objecting to try and stop you from bettering yourself in some way. And so again, the crux of discernment is to ask yourself, what brings you peace? If you were to sit with the idea that I don't do whatever it is, I think in this case he said it was a Reiki course he was going to Mm -hmm. do. So if you were to say, well, if I were to sit with that and really ask myself, why am I doing this? What's it for? The initial answer might be spiritual benefit. But if I look a bit deeper or closer, it could be to do with spiritual aggrandizement or ego or something. And I'm not suggesting it is. I'm just giving alternatives. Mm -hmm. So again, if I discover that as a second level or a third level within myself, it might mean I'm not ready to enter into this. Or maybe this isn't for me now at this moment. I need greater spiritual purity before I enter into these methodologies. Or it may be simply that I'm not at peace about it at the moment. So if I discover, you know, I can be excited about something, And I can be energized about something, but that doesn't mean it's actually bringing me peace. It's just bringing an agitation. So let go of the agitation. Let go of even the possibility of the thing happening and sit with yourself and see, am I actually more peaceful without it? And if you are, then I would suggest that the spiritual opposition was a good thing saving you from something. Mm -hmm. But if you sit with it and discover, actually, no, there's a deep spiritual longing for this. And I feel like it is something that I'm meant to do or have to do or whatever then in that sense, I would suggest that it is something that you need to do. But the discernment is important. When you've experienced such consistent opposition, I would certainly pause. I would hit pause and wait to see what is it that brings me deep peace. Not to make it about me, but again, I'm reminded of the um, sort of premonition I had uh, writing about the witch cloud that I was to do some sort of ritual. And I thought about it for a long, Mm. you know, long enough. And I said, I really don't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And a great peace came over me. As soon as I decided not to do it, I settled very peacefully. Yeah, and that's the thing to watch for. You know, again, it's scriptural, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is peace. Mm -hmm. And when Christ is present, when the divine is present, however you want to envision that, if you're envisioning the divine simply as good, the fruit of the presence of goodness is peace. And that can be peace even in the midst of a storm, you know, but it's an inner peace that actually lets you know that you are walking in the right path at that moment. Matt M. says, Brother Richard, it is not uncommon for people who have established deep meditative and contemplative practices to experience a bewildering range of strange phenomenon, lights, strange sounds, voices, psychic abilities, Mm. even interactions with what may or may not be separate external intelligences. What guidance are the monastics of the Capuchin Order given in navigating the complexities of a mind which is being coaxed to incline towards the silence at its source? Okay. Um, the basic advice is ignore them all uh, um, and persevere in the prayer, because as we enter into deeper, well, deeper levels, I suppose, and this is for anybody, like it's not specific to monastic. If you are beginning a meditative practice, you will first experience uh, what the Buddhists call the monkey mind, what the Christian tradition calls the logismoi, the thoughts that are like mosquitoes. You discover all of the chaos within yourself. Yes. And this is the first thing that happens, and it's the thing that turns most people off 
silent prayer or meditative prayer because it's like, I just don't want to go in there. It's too noisy and too messy. If you persevere long enough with it, um, it's not that that goes away, but that you become a detached observer of it and you don't interact with it. And so there is now a kind of a silent space that you can be with, not all of the time, but most of the time. This is essentially the basic practice of mindfulness in all traditions. Going further again, as we go deeper into it, we then begin to have what's called the purification of the imagination. So in the Christian understanding, the imagination is the power of the soul. It's one of the eternal parts of ourselves, and it's something that journeys with us as part of our personality as we go further on into eternity. And so everything we have received through the senses becomes an imaginal impression. The image that was often used in ancient times was just like a seal is used on wax. It makes an impression on the wax. And so it's not the thing itself, but it's an impression of it. Mm -hmm. And I carry that with me. So having purified the thoughts to some extent, the next level is that the imagination needs to be purified. And that happens through silence and through mantraic forms of, of prayer. Um, in the Christian tradition, particularly the Jesus prayer is used, but any form of mantraic prayer will bring this to a point where it begins to happen. And so I will begin to experience the sensory impressions that have happened before. And what happens is the grace of the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Spirit, the fire of focused prayer begins to melt the wax of the imagination again. And so these seal-like impressions have less and less power. They fade away. And we see this in the purification of the imagination, whereby the great saints, for example, arrive at a place of renewed innocence or renewed uh, grace, renewed, not naivety, but a, a kind of a, an open positivity towards everything. The senses are purified in that way. We would speak of this as finishing the first stage of contemplation, which is the purgative. The second stage then is the illuminative. And it's in that stage as it begins that there can be things like lights and noises and visions. Some of them might be generated by our own self. Some of them might come from the deep unconscious. Some of them can be caused by just the physical aspects of the body settling and of the energies of the body moving and shifting. This is very often similar to the kind of Kundalini experiences that people talk of from time to time. And for those Christians who are interested in all of that and kind of wonder about it, there is a very good book out there called Kundalini and the Holy Spirit, which people can, can read and look at if they, if they wish, which looks at the similarities and the differences between those kind of experiences that are out there. Uh, but essentially, the subtle energies of the being begin to move and the soul begins to take more control. Now, when these things arise, these kind of light phenomena, music, voices sometimes as well, and even visions, the contemplative is actually called within the tradition to ignore them because mostly they are a distraction. And if we get caught up in them, they can begin a path of egoic increase rather than dissolution mm -hmm. because the contemplative begins to think, oh, I'm special or I'm great or I'm fantastic because I have all of these manifestations happening. In the Taoist tradition, it's quite interesting. In some of the Taoist traditions, when they reach this particular point in contemplation, where the kind of preternatural powers begin, I'm qualifying and I'm qualifying, but I apologize for this, but it's kind of important. Within the Christian tradition, we say that there are the natural powers of all humanity. Okay, so intellect, imagination, memory. They are the natural powers that all human beings have. Then we have the preternatural powers. And these are the powers that we would have had only for our fall. And they include things like clairvoyance, clairaudience, telepathy. St. Teresa of Avila, for example, says that in heaven we will speak mind to mind and that the spiritual powers speak mind to mind in an instant. 
And so some of those preternatural powers can be gifted to saints and gifted to holy people and gifted to anybody through the grace of the Holy Spirit. But we do not have control of them on demand, usually, unless we've gone through fairly rigorous spiritual purification. So you'll often have people, for example, who will display psychic power or whatever, and they don't have control over it. It comes and it goes. You know, it doesn't work well in laboratories. It, it disappears. It kind of vanishes at times. And then other times it's very clear. And people who are more sensitive, um, you know, have more of a, a natural ability for it. And some don't. But it comes and it goes. And the problem with it is if it's not dealt with properly, it can create egoic problems. And egoic problems can begin to attract the attention of the negative side of the spiritual world. And so you begin to get problems in that way. And so the advice is, as these things appear, just ignore them, because the thing that you want to generate in your meditative, prayerful practice primarily is deeper compassion. That's the key. That's the thing that transforms you and transforms the world around you. So all of the other things disappear. It's it's what St. Paul says, you know, there are only three things that last, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So everything else is let go of. So as I mentioned in the Taoist tradition, one of the things that happens is as the preternatural powers appear, you demonstrate them when they appear, and then you are called to demonstrate them before your master. Uh, I think some of the Hindu lineages do this as well. You have to demonstrate it a number of times, three or four times, to prove that you have control over it. And then you have to take a promise never to demonstrate it publicly ever again. Oh, interesting. And this is so that you, I think you can only do so if it was to save the life of another being. And this is to make sure that there isn't egoic attachment to these things. Because when we leave the body, all of these things become the birthright of everybody in that moment. And it's only through our fallenness that we're, we're kind of blocked from those things at this time. Now, after the preternatural gifts, there are the supernatural gifts. And these are charisms directly from the Holy Spirit that no human being has a right by themselves. But anybody, you don't have to be a Christian to receive them from the Holy Spirit. Anybody of um, good heart and, and uh, good conscience can receive them. Uh, and they would be things like bilocation, levitation, the gift of languages, uh, the gift of healing, uh, palmaturgy, which is wonder-working, the gift of miracles itself, where someone seems to have power over the natural world, etc., all of those things. And to greater or lesser extent, they're supernatural gifts. So there's a big difference between the preternatural, which is the stuff that just appears through human development, and the supernatural, which descends from above. Mm. The supernatural gifts are to be encouraged because the greatest of those, faith, hope, and love, will eventually lead to utter transformation, theosis, where we become as alike to God as it's possible to be while still remaining who we are. And the preternatural gifts develop simply because we're human beings stretching ourselves through the disciplines of meditation. It's also interesting to note that within the Christian tradition, as the preternatural gifts develop, one of the things that often develops is a greater acuity with regard to the sort of um, collective unconscious or anima mundi or whatever. And this is often, again, within the Christian understanding where we don't believe necessarily in reincarnation per se, this is often seen as where people will fall into the error of thinking they are picking up past lives where they're actually picking up the lives of their own ancestors or the lives of those who are within that field of energy where all knowledge of all lives is present. And that's, uh, again, that's the Christian discipline on it. And I have wonderful Buddhist friends and wonderful Taoist friends and wonderful Hindu friends, and they accept reincarnation. And I accept with reverence and respect that that's their path. Right. But within the Christian understanding, that's the way we would view the evidence for reincarnation. 
So you as someone who meditates regularly and teaches mm. meditation and so forth, then you can be as vague or as detailed as you want about this. Have you ever experienced any of these strange phenomena? Yes. That's as much as I'll go into. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. But I will tell you a wonderful story of it. I was teaching teachers how to teach children to meditate. And one of the things when you're teaching teachers about how to teach children is you will find that children are masters of meditation very quickly. Because again, they're, they're in that field where the imagination and, and I mean that's in the sacred imaginal realm mm -hmm. and the openness to the spiritual world is still very pure. It's still very clear. They don't have all this wealth of distraction that, that we adults have within us. So when people are learning to meditate, they're not learning something new. They are remembering how to do what they did. It's worth remembering, I think, that it's in the last trimester, the brain waves of the baby in the womb are almost exactly the same as deep meditation. So, you know, we all started as meditation masters, but we got distracted when we were born. So I remember talking to, to teachers, and one teacher was telling me, there's this kid, and when he goes into meditation, he just won't come back. Like, we can't get him back. And I said, well, I, and I, I showed her that one of the things that we were taught is that if someone gets lost in meditation like that, to very, very gently hold the elbow, doesn't matter, left or right elbow of the person, uh, to squeeze it gently and to say their name knocks them back into this reality very quickly. And that's because there is a neurological cluster at the base of the, of the elbow, which stimulates the vagus nerve and, and makes them return very quickly. And she did this. And she said to the kid, you know, like, where were you? What were you doing? Because the, the other kids were just kind of watching their breathing and, you know, looking out of one eye at a time and, <laughs> and, and trying to make sure a teacher had her eyes closed so they could do whatever they wanted. <laughs> but this little kid was away and he described perfectly, you know, he said he just went home because he didn't want to be in school. So he just floated up and went home. Wow. And he was able to describe perfectly what was going on at home at that time. And she was horrified at this and was sort of saying, you know, um, I... I what will happen if he, if he never comes back? I said, no, he will always come back. There's no problem with that. But if you need to get him back at a particular time, this is what you do. But I said, like, it's really important you don't shake him or disturb him or, or, or bring him back in, in a kind of a traumatic way. Right. Because the, the child could lose the ability then very easily to do that. But most children will tell you. I remember one kid who told me she had the ability to, to unwind was the way she put it. I just unwind myself. Like she was off with the spiritual powers very, very deeply. This is a kid of about seven or eight, no problem at all. And then she would wind herself back up, back in. But because we meet teachers and parental figures and adults who tell people, oh, it's all in your imagination, or, you know, you're not, you're, you shouldn't be doing that, or, or like the teacher, you, they get frightened by it. The children very often lose the ability to do it very quickly. So the more we allow kids to kind of think and be deeply present in, in a spiritually protected way, then, uh, you know, th th these are gifts that, that the children are able to hold on to right into, into adult life. And it's a wonderful, wonderful gift for them to hold on to. So moving on, Patrick S. says, Hello, Brother Richard. I'm a filmmaker and part-time professor at a large Jesuit university. A few years ago, one of my students confided abuse by her coach to me, and I reported it. What followed was another version of a story we're all used to of cover-ups and retaliations. Having made several friends in the on-campus Jesuit community, I went to them asking for support for what had now become a large pool of victimized student-athletes. In the local Jesuits, I was met with a mistrust, anger, and vitriol that was practically comic in its exaggeration. I wasn't raised with any religion, but I've always been drawn to mystical and moral teachings. I think Strange Familiars itself is a show that engages people to listen more, think more, and consider more the journeys of our souls. Thank you for that. It's a very 
complimentary. How do you recommend that we cope here in this world when so many of our systems and figureheads won't even do the basics of what is right? Could justice itself be a form of tulpa? Okay, well, first and foremost, on behalf of the Catholic lineage, I want to apologize to Patrick. Patrick was the name, yes? Yes, to, yes. to, to Patrick. Mm-hmm, yeah. Because he was met by uh, the absolute opposite of what is supposed to happen. The first thing I would say most importantly is that if he still feels that that abuse hasn't been dealt with, then he should go to the secular authorities and report it. Because the fact that anybody has been abused in any way, shape or form is utterly wrong and needs to be dealt with with the full, I suppose, with the full capacity of the law to deal with it. Sure. And to investigate and deal with it. So just to say that, and, and again, to apologize, it hurts me to the core when I hear, I just can't, you know, it, it's so hard to, to I, I believe Patrick absolutely, but I'm saying it's so hard to apprehend that after everything we've been through, there would still be those who would meet any accusation of abuse in that way. Right, um, sure. So I, I just, it's just awful. And I, and I really, really am sorry about that. In terms of justice as a topa, Going back to having spoken about angels before and mentioning that one of the choirs of angels are the virtues, there are the angels of justice mm, yeah. in the sense of divine justice, which is not so much about vengeance as it is about balancing. So justice in that sense is the idea of bringing things back to a state of shalom, which is the state of where everything is in right relationship with each other. Shalom is often defined just simply as peace. But in English, we tend to think of peace as being non-conflict, whereas Shalom is much more active. It is the idea of right relationship with the divine, number one, with myself and with all other beings. And there are angels whose specific power and authority within the virtues is to bring about justice. So in that sense, I think using it in the in the kind of topic or, or Topic? Topaic? I don't know how you would <laughs> adjectivize that. But in a topa form, I don't think it's so much the generation of thought or energy in a particular way that will cause justice to happen. But one could certainly invoke the angels of justice to assist things to come to right balance. The topic stuff, I'm always slightly wary of because, number one, I think we have a very poor understanding of what tulpas actually are mm-hmm. within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Yeah. It's a much more subtle thing than has been presented in the West. But within the Christian tradition, we do speak of thought forms. And the idea that, as I mentioned before, with the imaginal becoming an impression upon the soul, that a thought is an energetic act. And so if I think the same thing over and over again, I will eventually generate a semi-independent spiritual reality, which is that particular thought. And that can actually begin to have a reciprocal power. It can begin to draw power from me and become an almost something that activates in my reality and begins to affect how I perceive reality. So from that point of view, healing and particularly sacramental confession, one of the things that that does is the dissolution of the thought forms that are present within us by kind of uh, rumination or, or over over-reliance on particular ways of thinking. So that's about as near within the Western tradition as we would come to the, to the traditional idea of what a tulpa is. Yeah. yeah. 
Andrew asks, with the frown upon or non-canon books of what early Christians knew as the Bible being popularized and talked about in modern times, has the church gone back and had a second look at any of them, as in acknowledging them or re-including them to teachings or perhaps explanation as to their exclusion? So the church has always studied them, has always looked at them. Uh, I mean, when I was going through philosophy and theology training, we, we went through all of the non-canonical texts, including the Gnostic texts, etc. The difference is, I suppose, uh, people have this idea that the canon of scripture, the, the sort of the ones that made it in, if you like, was sort of a, a kind of, um, what would you call it, a sort of a, oh, a kind of a, an edit, <laughs> if you like, that things were thrown out and things were, things were put in. What made it into scripture was very clear. Um, and it was clear by about the year 200, to be honest, in terms of the writings of, of the fathers. So by the second century AD, common era, however you want to put it, by the second century, the Old Testament had pretty much been absolutely defined by the Jewish uh, rabbinical tradition. And that was accepted by the Christian tradition at that stage as being, this is what the Old Testament consists of. By about 250 AD, we have the canon of the New Testament already being spoken of. Uh, anybody who, who, who is interested in any of this, I'd invite you to go back and read uh, Eusebius of Caesarea's Ecclesiastical History. He was the first historian, really, of the church to write it down. And he was a disciple of Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. So that's the lineage. So he's three away from the apostles. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about as early as you can get written texts. And he was already saying they had a rule for what they considered scripture. And the, the word canon just means a rule. That, that's what it means. So this was how they decided what was scripture and what wasn't. So it had to be connected to an apostle. That was the first thing. It had to be shown that it was accepted by the majority of Christians uh, as being authentic. And it couldn't contradict any of the other primary texts, if you like. So in that sense, by the year 170, the Moratorian canon, which is basically the New Testament as it was today, or the New Testament as it is today, was decided upon. There were a few arguments about a few of the letters, particularly the letter to the Hebrews and the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation is very difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. So as a result, there were people who kind of went, look, it's a nice text and it's great, but, you know, it's very hard to understand it. So should it be in the scripture, like the canon of scriptures? Is it more of a mystical teaching to be handed on to others that when they're able for it? Some of the letters of Clement, for example, who was the second pope, second bishop of Rome after Peter, and there was a question about whether or not his letters should be in or not. But again, it was felt, well, he wasn't actually an apostle, even though he was of the apostolic age, so therefore he doesn't get in. And then by 363, at the Council of Laodicea, it was defined finally. Now, there is out there, and again, this is when I speak as a Catholic, and so people are more than welcome to oppose it from their various viewpoints, etc. But I would just say, just go and read the history, like read the actual history that's out there. But there is this idea that, oh, the canon of scripture was made by the Roman emperor at the time, and he was decided, he decided who went in and who didn't go in. That wasn't the case. As I say, by 170, it was all there. By 363, it had been defined by a church council. And it spread pretty much after that. Now, they then said there were two other forms of writing that you could look at. There were the, this is Greek now, antilegomena, which were the books that have been spoken against. So in other words, books that were dubious in terms of their authority or where they came from. And so some of the, the very early Gnostic texts would be within, that, within those. 
And then there were the pseudo-epigraphia, which were books that were given names of apostles, but could not possibly have been. So, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, that's one of the most famous of the, uh, the Gnostic texts, the earliest that that could have been around was about the year 250-300. And that is um, way beyond when, when Thomas uh, the Apostle lived. And so the likelihood is that there are genuine sayings of Christ within that, it does seem to be that there are genuine sayings, but it is mixed with teaching of other sects mm. that were there. And so those things were left to one side at that stage. But that's when the canon came in. But there's nothing, we're not banned from reading or looking at any of those other texts that are there and learning from them. So as I say, within our training, we went through all of those. And I would still use them from time to time for reflection and meditation. Zoe B. Says, Brother Richard, what job would you have wanted to do had you not been called to the cloth? <laughs> Zoologist. I think I spoke about this before. I think you did, yeah. yeah. That was the direction I was heading in. The sciences have always attracted me and, and nature and animals. When I was younger, I had a vast array of pets and animals, wild and, and tame, and thoroughly terrified everybody in my house and home with various escapees that happened at all kinds of times. I often wonder what the people who live in that house now would find from time to time. I really hope they never dig up the garden because they're going to find a complete cemetery of bones of all kinds of, of animals. Uh, but yeah, I, had, I was the kid who, who kind of had everything. I had hedgehogs and birds and squirrels and toads and reptiles of all kinds of description and a pet crow for a long time who was a very good friend of mine. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've remained close to the crows ever since. But uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a lovely wild crow who um, came to me as a chick had fallen out of a nest and the local, the local children got to the point where they would bring me anything they found, <laughs> and much to the horror of my mother, who would, who would scream, there's somebody at the door with a jar. <laughs> and I would go down to see what it was. And they brought this little chick to me, and we, we looked after it and fed it. And it kind of lived semi-wild. It would fly off, but you could call it down. From, I could whistle it down from the sky, and it would come and land on your arm or your shoulder or whatever. There were all kinds of animals. So that was what always attracted me. And before I was, I'd kind of decided on the vocational path, um, it would have been towards zoology, I would have been attracted, yeah. Kind of poetic that you ended up a Franciscan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the animals meet you wherever, you know. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Octavian says, in certain occult realms, there are talks of natal or zodiacal angels. That Mm -hmm. is associated to you based on your full astrological birth chart. Is there anything like this in the scriptures? Um, Not so much in the scriptures, per se, other than the angels are seen as the powers that move the heavenly powers. So the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. In fact, the stars are identified with the angels. Usually they're seen as, well, they were seen as, as heavenly bodies. You know, they were also seen as in some way indicating that it was the angels who moved them, uh, who were the principles of movement behind them. And within Christian mysticism, there, there would be that idea as well. Within the spheres we mentioned before with the nine choirs and the three spheres of angels, uh, there are those angels whose job it is to guide the heavenly bodies and, and to mind them in that way. So, yeah, within Christian mysticism, there would be an overlap there. Tiger Jin asks, are relics just as efficacious behind the reliquary glass as without specifically I'm, <laughs> specifically i'm wondering if a third class relic can be created by touching a sacramental to the reliquary glass containing a first class relic yes is the answer yes you don't have to touch the relic itself though it is it, it, i suppose people like to know that it has actually touched the bone or the skull or the body or whatever it might be but yes simply bringing the cloth that is going to become a third class relic um, to a first-class relic and praying, asking that it is blessed in that way and generates a third-class relic. Is that something that uh, you would typically need a priest to do? Not necessarily, no. No, it's literally the act of connection, the act of touching generates it, yeah. Uh, similarly, I had my scapular blessed and uh, went to take it off to, to the, the the priest. is like, don't, I don't need to see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's fine, just yeah, leave yeah. it on. Yeah. Oh, okay. Many years ago, I knew a, a kid who was uh, an altar server, you know, an altar, an altar boy, and he heard a priest talking about the fact that only one drop of holy water is needed to sanctify, you know, a vat of water. So being a good altar boy, he took a little bottle of holy water and poured it into the river in his town and was delighted to think that he had single-handedly sanctified the entire river. <laughs> <laughs> no, in, in those terms, yeah, uh, I mean, we would often pray blessings over the phone, for example, or via Zoom, I have blessed over Zoom. I have, you know, done all of that kind of stuff. So it, in terms of connection, we, we are all simply in one place. There is only one place that actually exists, and that's the divine presence. All else is just versions of that. So there is no separation in that sense, spiritually, and we can connect to things or to people or to places, wherever they are. KMG says, Brother Richard, you're a poet as well as a monastic can the poet mind help us understand the other better? Can modern-day poets pick up the thread of the ancient Irish bardic tradition? Well, I suppose I can, only, I can only speak for myself and say that poetry and prayer for me are two sides of the same coin, but that's personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know people who just don't get poetry, you know, and that's fine. And there are other people who are inspired by other things. I think it's a case of, you often use the phrase, you know, follow what hums for mm-hmm. you. And I think that's true. To develop that 
spiritual sensitivity within yourself that says, this actually works for me. This brings brings me closer. Words and poetry have, have always done it for me. They've, they've, they've moved me quite powerfully. And I mean, I didn't set out to be a poet or anything like that. It was just, again, out of the meditative experiences and prayer came the poems. And very often the poems sent me back into the meditative experience. But music does it as well. You know, movies do it. Uh, lots of lots of different things do it. And I, I think you just need to find the things that do it for yourself. In terms of the bardic culture, the bards were an extraordinary group because there was there was a kind of a shamanic initiation associated with bardic training. So within the, the old Celtic hierarchy of, of people, there was the king at the top. There were the druids who were the sort of um, priests of the gods and, and, and of the, the kind of religious rites. And then the third category were the bards. The bards went through this extraordinary training for memory, number one. They were expected to be able to remember vast amounts of both law and poetry. They were the people who kind of held the story of the tribe as well as everything else. And part of that training included uh, things like being sealed into dark rooms for months and months at a time. They were the particular diet and it was abstinence at different times from different things like sexual relations or wine or whatever. And a bard was, was really a good bard if he and they, they were they were men. There were no female bards, at least not normally there weren't female bards. But it was to receive the gift. It was a gift from the God to become a bard. Uh, and so your tongue was liberated and you became someone who could sing and put verse on things. And there was considered a kind of a magic in it. The bards were the ones who were also very close to the fae. And it was considered a gift that could be bestowed by the fae as well. So in terms of recreating bardic culture, I don't know. I, I think, I suppose, Irish and Celtic traditional music has a lot of stuff that's been handed down. But I don't know if anybody would want to really live the life of a bard. They were kind of right on the uh, the edges of the village. There was a little bit of madness about them, a little bit of wildness about them. There are people I would identify as kind of living bardically now. I, I don't know if anybody of your listeners has come across. There was an Irish philosopher poet who, who died recently called John Moriarty. And he was the most extraordinary man. I would say if anybody inhabited the bardic mindset, certainly he had done. And there's a gentleman at the moment living uh, in England, he lives in Dartmoor, called Martin Shaw, who is an anthropologist of story, fascinating man, and has written beautifully around the necessity of the underworld journey for all human beings to kind of make those archetypal journeys. If I could recommend one book uh, that he has written, it, it is an extraordinary book called Courting the Wild Twin. That's a book well worth reading for anybody who's interested in kind of the power of story and the imaginal. But he certainly lives a kind of a bardic life. But again, it's a lonely life. And we see that in the poets over and over again, no matter where they are. To have poetic vision, to some extent, makes you an observer. And I think when you're the observer, people become somewhat nervous of you. Mm. And that goes for the monastic just as much as it does for the bardic, I'm afraid. There is a Scottish musician named Robin Williams, and he's one of my favorites. And he has a, multiple CDs called Gems of Celtic Story. Most of them are, mm. are taken from traditional Irish sources. Sure. But on the second volume, he has this piece that's called The Dialogue of the Two Sages, which is basically this young guy is, a, is as a joke, sort of appointed the position of bard while the, the official bard is out of town. <laughs> and, and the other bard comes back. 
And he says, how can you, you don't even have a, have a beard. So the young guy, he, I think he, he plucks a, uh, a handful of grass or something and, and puts it, you know, and it grows into his beard. And then they have this back and forth. This, the, the dialogue of the two sages, really wonderful uh, conversation they have kind of back and forth. This kind of poetic conversation is set to harp music because uh, Robin's a wonderful harp player. It's definitely worth looking up. Yeah, yeah, have a look at that. Yeah, wonderful. Andrew N. says uh, he's been waiting for another bro- Brother Richard Q&A so he can ask him his take on the Capuchin Crips in Rome and Palermo. <laughs> Peak strange yeah. familiars territory, he says. I haven't made it to Sicily yet, but every time I visit Rome, the crypt is the first place I go. I find it an oddly comforting place, genuinely funny. The mummified monks arrange to look as though they're bowing to greet visitors. Mm. The order's insignia created from real arms. I'd love to hear what Brother Richard makes of them. Yeah, well, not just the order's insignia, but even the lampshades are made from bones. It's well worth visiting for anybody who's interested in the kind of more sepulchral Gothic elements of Catholic piety, I suppose. So these came about because it was considered a blessing to be buried in a, mon- in a monastic cemetery. The idea being that if you were going to be surrounded by these monastic souls, then the chances were you'd sort of beat the rush at the last judgment. And so uh, in Rome, where they first began in the Piazza Barberini in, in, in Rome, which is one of the earliest houses of, of our Capuchin reform, a returned crusader gave to the monks there a ton of soil from the Holy Land that he had taken back as relics. Don't ask me how he got a ton of soil back. I have absolutely no idea. But anyway, he gave it to the monks to put into their cemetery. And there was the folk belief that when the last trump would happen and the dead would rise, that those who were buried in the Holy Land would be the first to rise. So again, if you you couldn't afford to get your body to the Holy Land, well, bring the Holy Land to you Mm. and get buried in the soil of the of the Capuchin graveyard. So as is the norm in a lot of monastic places, uh, the bodies of the friars, the the brothers, and those who wanted to be buried there would be buried. But then because you wanted to get as many people with that experience as possible, once they went to kind of bones, they would be dug back up again and the bones would be cleaned off and they would be placed in an ossuary, a, a place of storage for bones. And the next group would move in. So this left them with thousands and thousands of bones and skeletons. And uh, at some point, probably around the late 1600s, early 1700s, one of the friars had an idea. And the idea was, why not turn the entire thing into a meditation on death? And so he quietly, by himself, decided that he would decorate the crypt um, with the bones of the dead brothers. And he did so making all kinds of designs and images, etc. And the idea is that you walk through the crypt meditating on death as a sort of a memento mori, a way of reminding yourself of your own mortality. And in bones uh, above the entrance to the Piazza Barberini, uh, written in Latin, is the inscription, we were once as you are now, you will be as we are now. And so you go through and you pray for those who, 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 have, who have died there. And as one of, uh, as your, your listener said, uh, even the coat of arms of the order, which is two arms, literally, a, a, a friar's arm and, and the arm of Christ interposed over each other, are there. But they, in this case, they are actually two arms that are nailed to the wall. Hmm. At one stage, we thought of closing it to the public because it was felt with the sensibilities, particularly of the kind of Victorian age that was a bit much but it's now considered a site of world heritage. And so we keep it open and you can go in as long as 
you know, you're kind of respectful and silent. Mm -hmm. It has the effect of silencing people anyway. It's fascinating to watch big groups of tourists arriving in, you know, all cameras and shorts and ice cream and waiting to sort of walk in. And by the time they come out, they're just pale and quiet and still because most people nowadays don't really encounter dead bodies. Yeah. There's always saving your presence groups of Americans who ask, is it real? Is it real? Over and over again. And, and it is. It is real. And the Capuchins went on to do this in Paris and in Palermo and in many other places. And it was a kind of a reminder that death is, is never too far away. So, yeah, it's a fascinating place. If any of your listeners want to see it, just Google Capuchin catacombs and you'll see it immediately, what it looks like. And if you're ever in Rome, it's a good spot to have a look at. And there's a very good restaurant just across the square if you want to sit afterwards and have pizza or pasta and kind of recover yourself. Yeah, it's, it's part of our, of our tradition to, to meditate upon the dead. As I sit here now in my room here on my own meditation altar, there are a number of relics and there are at least one, two, three. There are three large human bones of sainted martyrs who sit with me at night here on my on my altar so uh this is the way we we remember the dead and we remember that you know they were once as we are now and we will be as they are now no avoiding it nope no no the only thing certain sheila m says first i'd like to say how much i enjoy brother richard's visits to strange familiars my question is about the scent of roses and the association with Our Lady. Mm. Several years ago, while at work, I was suddenly surrounded by the strong scent of roses. There were no flowers in my office or nearby. No one had sprayed any air freshener. The scent was only around my desk and lasted several minutes. Have you ever heard of this? Could I have been visited by Our Lady? Throughout the experience, I was filled with peace. Well, it certainly sounds like a beautiful blessing. I don't know is the answer as to whether or not it was Our Lady or a saint or an angel or an ancestor, a beloved ancestor who was present, or whether there was a physical reason that you were surrounded by that and maybe just the memories that evoked by the scent of roses gave you that peace. I don't know because I wasn't there. But in the sense of could it have been, absolutely it could have been. We receive these little touches of grace, you know, many times over. And sometimes they are the scent of roses. Padre Pio, for example, it tends to be the scent of roses, or sometimes people get it as incense, and people have even smelled it as tobacco, depending on how they smell. Relics and, and visitations by the saints often includes an olfactory element. Um, it's one of the most primitive of our senses, and it's the one that's keyed to our emotional center particularly, so we can see why a movement of spiritual impulse would, would affect it in a, in a particular way. So, I mean, all I can say to your listener is, perhaps, and just simply be thankful for the blessing that it was. Jesse Yes says, yay, yay Brother Richard. <laughs> How are the cool robes washed? Who makes them? <laughs> what are they made out of? How long do they last? And he says, y'all are definitely Jedi. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. So we make them ourselves. <laughs> there are brothers whose job is, one of the jobs would be tailor. Um, as part of our novitiate training, we are all trained in making them, but some of the brothers would specialize in it. The design of the robe is the design that was given to St. Francis by an angel. And so uh, it's a very simple monastic robe, a, a basic tunic with, with a large pointed hood. The hood comes right over the face, and uh, that's so as to exclude distraction during times of meditation. And we also wear uh, a cloak over that in wintertime. Generally, we go barefoot. We're a discalced order, so we go barefoot in sandals unless for health or age reasons. I think over 70, uh, the friars don't have to go barefoot unless they wish to, but most do at that stage because your feet have died a long time before then. We also make the cords 
that we wear as a kind of a belt and the rosaries. And again, different friars would specialize in different things. So I specialized in making the rosaries for the brothers and still do that. The large rosaries that we wear at our belt and are traditionally known as the, the sword of the night uh, in, in that way from a kind of a spiritual point of view. We wash them in washing machines just as you would wash your ordinary clothes. And it's a sight to behold on laundry day when you see all these habits floating in the breeze outside. <laughs> people sometimes come, especially around Halloween, it's amazing how many times people get in touch to know, can they borrow the robes? <laughs> to which they are told, no. The robes are, are blessed and consecrated objects. Um, so we don't lend them out for dress up. And uh, people kind of get quite amused by that because um, they, they don't think of it in that way. But for us, it's a, it's a kind of a sacramental. There are prayers to be prayed when putting them on. They're meant to keep us kind of mindful of divine presence. We wear them about 90% of the time. If I was out with family or friends or that kind of stuff, socially or that, sometimes I would wear them, sometimes I don't. But whenever we're, we're ministering or in the ordinary day-to-day -day life of the friary, we, we wear them. You would normally have a couple of robes uh, one would be a kind of an ordinary everyday work habit and then you would have a good habit for you know liturgy or for special occasions and things like that they last a long time because we repair them a lot and we're very frugal with them and so normally uh, you'd get about 10-15 years out of a habit and the um, I'm trying to think of the other questions he asked what are yeah, they made uh, of? They're, oh they're made of they're made of wool the basic wool mix and to assuage the curiosity of anybody else out there, we wear clothes under the habit. Uh, we're not Scotsmen. <laughs> so in, in that sense, uh, we wear uh, ordinary clothes beneath the habit as well. So the rope around your waist, it has, I believe, three knots? Yeah, so the three knots represent the three vows made by Franciscans. So that's the vow of poverty um, in that we own everything in common and we try and live as simply as we can. The vow of obedience, which is self-explanatory, we're obedient to our superiors in terms of, well, primarily to Christ and to the Gospels, but then to the superiors after that in terms of what our ministry is or where we go or what we do. And then the third vow is the vow of chastity, which means that we don't get married and we don't have children. Mm -hmm. Frank asks, Brother Richard, what do you make of Moses? His works and miracles feel almost unparalleled, but for Christ, it's no wonder to me that so many books of magic have taken his name. Sometimes I feel an entire mystery surround him. What do you think is the distinction in working with a figure like Moses versus working with the figure of a saint or angel, if indeed there is one? Well, there's, there's no distinction. To us, he is a saint. He is Saint Moses, just like Saint Elijah or Saint Isaiah or Saint Jeremiah. So all of the Old Testament figures within the Christian tradition became saints at the moment of their elevation to heaven in our tradition that takes place after the resurrection of Christ. So we venerate them simply as, as saints, as, as holy people, and we can pray to them and seek their intercession and their assistance. I suppose because of the great wonders that Moses wrought, or that God wrought through Moses, to be more correct, yeah, he, he turns up in a lot of the magical traditions and, and kind of occultic traditions and a lot of the, um, like Solomon, uh, you know, a lot of the things that are, that are associated with kind of uh, the occultic use, and particularly the grimoire tradition, would refer back to Moses and would refer back to Solomon with, without, it has to be said, any real historical connection to those Right, things. yeah. You know, again, it's like the pseudo-epigraphia. People want to associate names with them. Now, you also have individuals who claim that they have had revelations from them or through spirits about them since then. And, you know, sure, that's possible. Within the Christian tradition, if you want to read more about Moses from a spiritual tradition that's sort of at one with the faith, 
um, then the writings of the uh, mystic Anne Catherine Emmerich um, on the life of Christ and the life of the Blessed Virgin includes a lot about the early life of Moses. It would be considered at the level of pious tradition. It's not necessary to faith or anything like that, but it certainly includes a lot of his early training within Egypt, and it's interesting to read. Joshua L. says, Brother Richard, how do you think we can mesh the monastic life with the modern world and continue to make it an attractive and realistic prospect for believers who want to enter? Well, that's what I'm trying to do um, by reaching out in that way. Um, I suppose what one has to define is what is perennial and, and part of the authentic tradition that cannot be lost, and what are the things that change simply because of time and place. So for example, one of the things that happened when St. Francis wrote his rule, uh, one of the things that he says about the brothers is that the brothers shall not ride horses. Okay, very clear. The brothers shall not ride horses. Now, we still read that, and that's still the rule we take our vows to. But the understanding is that what Francis is really saying to us today is the brothers shall not be in very expensive cars, mm. you know. So if I was to be offered a horse now, you know, there's nothing preventing me, according to the rule, from riding a horse now. But there is, according to the same rule, the same teaching of Francis, something stopping me from having like a very powerful wealth kind of car or, or expensive car. So from that point of view, things have to be interpreted with regard to the time and the place. And, and the monastic tradition has pretty much always done that. I think one of the things that's really important is for the monastic tradition to be more voluble in terms of the insights around meditation and contemplation that it safeguards, that it holds as part of its treasure. Because this was originally the birthright of all the baptized, and the monastics were only meant to be the people who taught it and who kind of systematized it. So if you look at all of the, even the Eastern traditions, for example, like Buddhism, if you go to a Buddhist country, per se, you will find that the ordinary Buddhist lives a kind of a devotional Buddhist life, whereas it is the monastics who are practicing the deep, contemplative, meditative teachings. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at what happened when Buddhism came to the West, it was monastics who brought Buddhism to the West. And so they taught the lay practitioner in the West a monastic form of Buddhism that would never have been taught to the ordinary, in inverted commas, layperson in the East. And so oftentimes there can be this idea that, um, oh, well, Buddhism and Hinduism, etc., are the ones that have this great panoply of spiritual technology, etc., that can be accessed very easily, whereas the Christian tradition just has a devotional life. But that was exactly because the same thing happened. The ordinary layperson who was busy with the cares of life lived a kind of a devotional Christian life, and the monastics lived the more meditative contemplative. And so I think one of the great gifts that the Buddhist or, and the Eastern religions coming to the West has done is it, it has reminded the Western tradition that it also needs to share its interior spiritual technology, for want of a better word. Uh, and I think that's something that the, that the monastic tradition, when it does, it can be such a revelation to people that this actually exists, this all exists within their own tradition as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> for me. Certainly. Mm. Yeah. And, and talking with you and, and just having you as a resource, which leads me into my next question, which sure. is, is mine. It wasn't on the paper here. Okay. You've been always extremely open with, with the questions that people have and questions about your vocation and, and the order and so forth. And, sure. and certainly open with me personally. 
are there, and I, I, I'm just asking this because I, I think there might be like, you know, people say, oh, you know, you the robes and monasteries and stuff. Are there secrets that you cannot share? There aren't secrets in the sense of techniques, but there are things that are shared only at appropriate levels when people get to particular levels. It's not that you won't find them. They're in the books. Mm-hmm. You know, they're there for people to go and study and find. But in terms of teaching, you would say there are particular practices that are only appropriate when you have reached particular levels of development. Because otherwise, if you were to start them at levels when you're not ready for them, they could be overwhelming or they could destabilize or they could be um, even dangerous from a psychoenergetic point of view. So, for example, within the teachings around the Jesus prayer, which is a very deep form of meditation, a mantraic form where we repeat the name of Jesus and where the entire gospel is summed up in the meditation on it. The practitioner begins by simply learning the mantraic form and repeating it and developing habits of focus and inner attention. After a while, there are other techniques that can be added to it, which include particular breath patterns, ways of breathing, physical posture, etc., which deepen the experience of the prayer. But they wouldn't be given to the beginner at the start because it's just too much too soon and the person could be overwhelmed. I heard someone recently talking about just prayer in general and and they said you don't take someone who is comfortable and and just sort of entering into it and maybe they're comfortable with 20 or 30 minutes of prayer a day and then say pray three hours a day. No. Because they're going to get frustrated and lost and, and give up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why when we start teaching children, for example, we start with two minutes. Mm-hmm. And what you often find is the children are hungry to go to 10 or 15 or 20, but you start with 15 and 20 with adults and they can just about manage two minutes. Mm-hmm. The same is true. You've got to start from where you're at, you know, yourself. And also to preserve a genuinely open, loving, good-humored presence to these things. Because if that's not there, people become, you know, they can enter into so many dangerous habits like scrupulosity or um, egoic attachment to practices. There's a wonderful story within the Tibetan tradition, and it gets echoed within the Christian tradition as well. Uh, I don't know who had it first, but it's one of these universal stories that Mm -hmm. has arisen. But within the Tibetan tradition, we'll tell it where a practitioner really wants the secret mantra, you know, the mantra that will transform and change everything, that will make them, you know, the super Buddha that they that they want long to be. And they persecute this monastic teacher who keeps telling them, you're not ready, you're not ready, you're not. And eventually he gives in and he whispers the mantra into his ear and says, this is what you must practice day and night. You know, it has to be constantly. And the guy perseveres for 20 years with this mystical phrase, and eventually attains to supreme Buddhahood. And he appears in a blaze of light to the monk who gave him the mantra. And he says to the monk, you know, thank you, and you know, everything, I owe everything to this mantra. And the monk starts to laugh and laugh and laugh. And he writes out what the mantra was and then turns it around. And it turns out that all he has been saying is basically, and I'll put this nicely, but is basically saying excrement, excrement, excrement as his mantra, but in a kind of a, 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 um, a colloquial sense that he wouldn't have known what he was saying. Right, right. And the, the point to it is that it, there's nothing magical about the stuff itself. It's about attaining the habits of focus and meditation and transcending ego and selfishness. And that that's what got him to the Buddhahood. 
you know. Mm-hmm. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, there's a wonderful Talmudic story of, um, going back to Moses again, of Moses being out in the desert leading the people, and one night they're camping, and he sees this desert um, shepherd, you know, with his goats, and the desert shepherd is milking his goats, and then he takes one little bowl of milk, and he brings it over and puts it on a stone. Did I tell you this story before? I don't think so. Okay, so he takes it over and puts it on a stone, and he looks up to heaven and he says, Now, great God of this desert, I give you your cup of milk. And Moses is looking at this. He calls the guy over and he says to him, um, What are you doing? And he said, I'm giving God, I always give God a cup of milk. And Moses said, But God, God is a spirit. God doesn't need milk, you know? Like, you should just pray to God the way we pray to God. And the shepherd says, Well, all I know is he drinks the milk every night. I go in the morning and the bowl is empty, so God must like the milk. So Moses, anyway, is having none of this and wants to educate the poor shepherd and says, well, we're going to sit up and watch this bowl of milk. And I guarantee you, God did not drink the milk. So they sit all the way through the night. And at about two o'clock in the morning, suddenly a little fox comes along and jumps up on the stone and drinks the milk and disappears. And Moses turns to the shepherd and says, see, I told you, God is pure spirit. God is not going to drink your milk. So the poor shepherd looks crestfallen and says, so all those nights I gave a a, a, a cup of milk. I wasn't giving it to God. And he said, no, what God wants is your, you know, your worship and, and you need to come and become one of the chosen people and be one with us. And the shepherd says he'll think about it. And Moses goes to prayer that morning and God appears in the great blaze of glory over the Ark of the Covenant. And the first thing God says is, Moses, I'm thirsty. Where's my milk? <laughs> so again, it's a beautiful story. And it's just that thing of the intention is what's important. Mm-hmm. The intention is the important thing. So in that sense, there aren't secrets, but there is the focusing of intention to try and live an authentic life. And that's something we fail at the moment. Like, and I know people who listen, they hear Brother Richard and they see the robes and they hear the information and stuff. But I'm just struggling like everybody else to live a practice as best I can and as authentically as I can. And I fail over and over again. But because I trust in the practice, because I trust in what I've seen the practice do in the lives of the brothers around me and in the holy ones who have gone before, I begin again, you know? And that's all that we can do is begin again. You know, I have, to use the word sinned, I have, I have sinned dreadfully against myself and against others and against lots of, of experiences in my life that I'm not happy about at all and that I ask mercy and pardon for. So I don't want anybody out there thinking, you know, oh, he's the sage or the expert or the holy one. I'm far more likely to be the uh, the shepherd offering a bowl of milk than I am to be Moses beholding the glory. Craig P. says, I'm interested in it to know what you think dreams are. Are they power? I guess he's saying, are they the power of the other or our subconscious talking to us or something else? Gosh, um, I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, a little bit of column C. I know on Strange Familiars, you often use the definition of little dreams and big dreams. And I think that's about as accurate as we can get. I think there is no doubt from a Judeo-Christian tradition, you've only got to open the scriptures and see how many times God speaks through dreams and angels are sent through dreams and confirmations are sent through dreams. And then also dreams can be extremely symbolic as well. And for us to know our inner life well and to know our unconscious well gives us the kind of uh, lexicon of symbolism that works for us that may not necessarily work for others. One of the things I actually did some work in and some training in was dream interpretation, and it's a fascinating world to be in. But in the end, you can only offer guesses. I think only the person who can receive the dream can adequately 
interpret it. And sometimes that's only through, you know, it's only looking back mm. after, after time that we get to do that. Uh, in terms of the dream world, as we enter into it, because it's also the realm of the imagination, it's seen as a spiritual place and as a real place that we go to, to be received into um, spiritual communication. So even though we may not remember the dreams, and even though some of them are just inane or, or simple, they all count as part of spiritual development. I have said that should I try to at one day do it what Josh did with Ecology of Souls, I think um, my focus would be on dreams as opposed oh, to death. Yeah, yeah. yeah not yeah. that his isn't valid. I mean, it's completely valid. His whole his research is wonderful. But I just sure. thought, you know, if I was to do a sort of a holistic look at the paranormal or... or uh, Through the lens of dreams. Yeah, yeah that yeah. would be really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think what's really interesting for me is, is, and it was one of the things that first attracted me to Strange Familiars and Where Did the Road Go and those kind of podcasts was that they were asking the questions that so many other investigators of cases didn't ask. So people would come and they'd say, I saw Bigfoot or I saw an alien or I saw a ghost. But they weren't asking the questions, what were you dreaming about yeah. in those days? What was happening to your sleep? What was happening in your body? What was happening in your relationships? What was happening... You know, what happened when you were five or 10 or 12? Because no matter how ordinary or extraordinary an event is in our life, it is an element of a continuum of consciousness. It's not something that just happens and is closed off and is gone. So anything that happens to me has an echo that goes into the past and into the future at the same time, because I am a being meant for eternity, but living in time. So we're all slightly unfocused in time. And I think that's why dreams become very important as a way of uh, receiving deeper, deeper meaning or deeper significance to events as they happen. You mentioned uh, St. John Bosco in our mm. previous discussion. He has a very active dream life that he recorded. Oh, volumes and volumes yeah. of prophetic dreams. Yeah, I mean, his Cilician, the Cilician Order, the order that he founded to this day still guides itself to a large extent by the dreams that he had in the court. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. I will at some point be covering those on The Flower Path. They're just fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. Steve says, the solstice is coming. It seems that all cultures are fascinated with this astronomical event. What happens during this event symbolically and supernaturally? The stillness of the dance. Yeah, well, I suppose in the Celtic tradition, um, solstice, whereby, as we know, it looks like, you know, everything pauses, the sun stops in the sky and then reverses its trek and the light begins to grow or at the other solstice, the light begins to decrease. These were seen as moments reflecting again on the angelic powers and the heavenly powers, moments when the dance pauses. And the question then from the mystical tradition was, why would the dance pause? And so it was seen as being a moment of lament for the fall when we begin to move into darkness and a moment of rejoicing that the birth of the Christ is near with the winter solstice, uh, the return of the light. Within the Celtic tradition, I think I've mentioned this before on, on Strange Familiars, there was this understanding of five moments of perfect stillness where the universe actually stopped for a moment and where the course of the universe is reset course of the cosmos is reset. And these were the five great solstices of history. One was the fall. So the moment when Eve pauses to consider whether or not she will eat the fruit as such. 
The second was the Annunciation, when the angel pauses to receive the answer of Mary. Uh, the third is the birth of Christ. Uh, we spoke of the non-canonical books uh, in the um, uh, the Gospel of St. James, or the Pseudo-Gospel of St. James. There is the understanding that the Christ is born in a moment of absolute stillness, that even the snow that's falling and the birds that, fly, that are flying in the sky all freeze into a moment of absolute stillness when the Christ is born. Uh, the last two, then, are the consummatum est, the moment when Christ says it, it is consummated, it is done at the moment of the crucifixion. There is a moment of perfect stillness. And the last one is the moment of the resurrection. And these are considered to be the five moments when even the stars pause to watch. You know, they're kind of holding their breath to see what's going to happen next, looking at what happens on Earth at this moment. So solstices have always been very sacred moments and moments when the light and the dark and the living and the dead dance a little more close together. And traditionally, there were times as well when you um, invited the ancestors to visit. You know, both Halloween and the winter solstice were, were very often the same kind of practices were used, like leaving a door open or a lamp on or leaving out food for the souls. We are speaking on December 12th, which is the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe. But mm. By the calendar, I think at that time, I, I believe this is correct, the apparition appeared on the winter solstice. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Yeah, one of the most extraordinary of the, the apparitions uh, in the sense that it provided proof <laughs> in the reception of the tilma, the image of Our Lady imprinted upon the, yeah. the cloak of, of San Juan. We will have to do a show on this because it oh, yeah, is absolutely yeah. fascinating. That cloak should not exist, and yet it does. Yeah, you'll get a couple of hours out of that one, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so Melanie has a, a story that she sent, and she mm. wants your thoughts on tree spirits, and she gives this mm. story here. She says, uh, to begin with, she says, first of all, she shared this with Monster Fuzz, but we're going to share it again here. Okay. Uh, she said, no substances other than the regular prescribed medications were consumed <laughs> before during this experience. <laughs> Afterward, however, is another story. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is a simple story, incredibly sobering. Every time we had a big storm, which is often as we live in on an island off the coast of Maine, I would okay. watch this giant white pine swinging vicariously towards our home. It was a gorgeous tree, well over 100 years old, and I didn't want to cut it down. But even more, I didn't want it to fall on the house. It's a good house, and if I had to choose, I'd go for the house every time. After years of hemming and hauling, we finally decided to get someone in to cut the beautiful huge pine down. I silently apologized to the pine and to all the critters who lived on it or used it regularly. We live in the woods with many different animals, so that was a lot of apologizing. A day came, and a young well-referred local guy came to do the deed. My heart was sad, but the rest of me was happy to let go of one more worry in my life and happy for the added sun we would gain when it was down. The sun thing is important to the story. We have a passive solar home and winters can be tough here in northern New England. Any solar gain is appreciated when the temperatures fall. So when we saw how much light was added when the big pine came down, we started getting greedy and cocky. I talked to the young man about how much it might cost to take down three other large, but not as big as the pine, coniferous trees. My cockiness got even worse when the amount he told me was well within our budget. So we decided to quadruple our solar gain by cutting down the three other trees. That was our mistake. The pine was down and quickly the other trees followed. But as the third tree was falling, I felt this massive wave of anger, surprise, hatred wash over me. It came from the direction of the felled tree. It was truly a wave. And while I only felt it, it was so strong that I almost saw it, if that makes sense. You know when you get hit hard in the head by something and you have a wave of stars and blackness come over you 
mm-hmm. and it's a visual experience. It was kind of like that. And then it quickly moved and passed and left the area. I was left gasping and dazed. I'm pretty sensitive, psychically speaking, but I had never felt anything like this before. I've been yelled at by ghosts and some such, but this was way worse. I ran to my partner and started describing what had just happened, and he said... He had felt the same thing, just not as strong. Now jumped to the trees being cut. The young man was quickly gathering up his equipment. He grabbed our money and left as fast as he could, which was interesting (laughs) because he wasn't in a hurry when he arrived. My partner suspects he felt this wave as well. This could have easily been imagined by me as I am an artist. I do have a wild imagination, but I can also be very objective when I put my mind to it. This experience needed some clear objective thinking, and I wasn't the only one to feel it. Try as I might, however, I have no idea what happened and can't say what it was we felt. I can only guess. I'm a bit educated in Celtic myths and stories. Ancestry says I'm 100% British Isles in Western Europe, so you guys are my peeps. I guess she's speaking to Monster Fuzz there. At this point, I'm leaning towards the wave being a tree spirit, not the spirit of a tree, but the spirit living in the tree. It truly mm. felt like something other, stronger and powerful, and pissed, as she says, upset. Mm. I only hope that it has left our land for good. Wow. Okay. Well, I suppose you start from the I don't know. Right. Uh, because I wasn't there. But if I was making an educated guess, I would say, yeah, there, there was definitely somebody was annoyed that their home was being destroyed. And and again, it's that little bit of humanity that goes, well, you know, I apologize to one. Sure, it'll, it'll count. And we forget that we live in a whole neighborhood um, and that there are spiritual beings of all kinds of level all around us. And that what we're called to is a kind of a guardianship of land and of, of the earth that isn't about exerting our own will to some extent. So yeah, I mean, if any tree was to come down, absolutely apologize, ask permission, invite whatever beings live there to move elsewhere and give it good warning. There are all kinds of blessings for uh, the felling of trees and for the lifting of, uh, or even the planting of trees. So yeah, we, we like, I'd be very wary of taking down anything that's very old without good warning and good offering and the promise of alternative building. I'd certainly make sure that I had planted the same number of trees that I had taken elsewhere um, and to at least restore the balance in that way. Because even though something might have, the wave of something might have felt like something having to move or leave, it doesn't necessarily mean it's leaving the land. It might just mean it's letting you know that it's not, it's not happy. But again, um, you know, ask your angel, your guardian angel to speak to the spirits of the land and the spirit of the tree there and to pass on your apology and the promise that you will make good on those trees that came down by planting trees when you can elsewhere. Maintaining the balance is a, is a good thing. And there are, I've no doubt about it, there are spirits of the land and spirits of the trees. Um, just recently in uh, the land that we manage in, in Donegal, um, which is an old forest, one of our brothers there who had been working, doing a lot of work with the trees there, and uh, some trees had been cleared that were uh, foreign invaders that had come in and, and, and really had done a lot of damage in terms of the lower forest. He had worked very, very hard for a number of days clearing it out. And uh, he was in his room uh, one night after the project had finished uh, with the window open. And he heard what he described as a workman whistling outside the kind of, you know, um, sort of random tune that somebody whistles as they're going about their business. So this being late at night and in the middle of the forest, he was saying, you know, who in good God's name is this? So he went to the window and looked out and there was a little blue orb weaving its way around the site where all of the trees had been cleared out. And the whistling, the humming and whistling was coming from the orb. Wow. Um, and it just kind of went on its way and then went off back into the deep forest. 
And I said to him, well, how did you feel about it? And he said, I kind of felt like they were just coming out to check what had been done and they were okay with it. And I said, well, that's fine. So <laughs> he, he at least knew the basic advice, which is, you know, if you see them, acknowledge them, but never follow them. Yeah. So um, that was his, his kind of interaction with them. So, yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd certainly affirm from the narrative, it certainly sounds like a tree spirit made its displeasure known that day. So watch out for the end. <laughs> Tim F. has a question related to the Flower Path and St. Gemma mm. Galgani. He says, I was left wondering about the meaning or purpose behind the physical agonies that she underwent. Do stigmata and other such manifestations have a purifying influence on this realm, as if the saint is taking on and processing, as it were, the corruption of the world? Or are these manifestations seen as wholly mysterious or something else entirely? And this gets, she was known as a victim soul, so it kind of weaves yeah, right into it's in, that. Yeah, it's into that particular spirituality. So. Yeah. The victim soul is the understanding of someone who becomes a living icon of the suffering Christ. So in the same way as when we contemplate a crucifix or a, um, an icon of Christ crucified, it is to bring about a deeper understanding of what Christ has gone through and what Christ suffers because of our sins or because of our problems and difficulties. We see repeated in certain people the imagery of the, the suffering, but this time it's actually present physically in a human body. So people like St. Francis, Gemma Galgani, Veronica Giuliani, uh, Padre Pio, many of these, these people go through this. It's usually only received when there are, there's enough spiritual development or spiritual grace given for the person to support in their own physical body sufferings that would kill anybody else. I mean, Padre Pio, for example, his heart wound, he had an open wound into the heart which bled constantly for 50 years. You know, I mean, he should have been dead many, many, many times over. And uh, like Gemma, he also went through the crowning of thorns and the scourging on, from Thursday to Saturday. Mm. But again, it also comes as a reminder to a world that sometimes forgets that it sits as a little floating island of physicality in an entire cosmos of the unseen powers. And so it's a way of kind of shocking us and reminding us. For the individual concerned, it tends to only happen when they've already arrived at a place of real self-transcendence of the ego. So what you find with a lot of these saints is they're quite distressed by the physical appearance of it. They don't like being, you know, picked out as something to be looked at. Right. Yeah. Um, Padre Pio hid his. Oh, exactly. What they look for is to continue the suffering, but to hide the visible signs of it. And that's one of the things that's looked for. I mean, someone who's going out there saying, look at me, look at me, is not on that path wherever it comes from. And there are there have been false stigmatists and things like that in the past. But the actual idea of what this suffering is doing is it is being united with the once and for all eternal sacrifice of Christ that takes place because he was divine, not just in a moment of historical time, but in a moment of timelessness. It is eternal and continues from now until the end of time, and they are united to that and become living images or icons or channels of that. And they are, at least you know, from what I've read, this mm. isn't something that's thrust upon them. Oh, no. No, no, no. It's, it's only ever asked and has to be uh, accepted with the free will of the individual concerned, yeah. John B. asks, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best pronouncing the, the, the author's name here. I've just begun reading Brian Murarescu's book, The Immortality Key, the main thrust mm. of which posits that the early Christian Eucharist was in part an outgrowth of the Eleusinian mysteries of ancient Greece. There is evidence in ancient texts and artwork that points to the use of the psychedelic blue water lily, or erga, a fungal disease that is found on barley and is 
active component behind LSD in the Kukian wine mix uh, used in Greeks mm. initiation ceremonies, which centered on both Demeter and Persephone and Dionysus. Similarly, the author believes that he has found evidence that the original Eucharist in the early Christian church was mimicking this offering, psychedelic-laced wine, to its Greek-speaking priests and followers. Moreover, this was a time when women led the services, just as they had done at uh, Ulysses prior to their exile by male Christian leaders. The original mind-altering elixir was then replaced by a placebo variant of regular wine and water. Uh, The author reached his conclusions after speaking with Christian leaders, reviewing hundreds of documents from the Vatican non-public archives, and analyzing the latest developments in archaeochemistry. What are your thoughts on this? Are you familiar with his work or similar research? Can you speak to John's Gospel that portrays Jesus as a kind of second coming of Dionysus? For instance, the water-to-wine miracle attributable to the Greek god of wine. A lot there. There's a lot there. Yeah, I mean, you could do an entire program on this. I'm familiar with the work, uh, first of all, and I'm always, it's like the Mary Magdalene question. I'm always wary of answering these because a lot of what I'm about to say can be just dismissed as, well, of course he would say that, the Catholic priest. So what I would say, and I don't mean this in any dismissive way at all, but your listener begins with, I have just begun to read in this instance. Uh, And I would say that having read the book, please go and read the scientist's and historians and archaeologists who have done critiques of the work. It's a fascinating theory, and I have no doubts whatsoever that in that early stage of Christianity where the Jewish world, the Christian world, and the Greek pagan world were up close against each other, there was definitely times when everybody was borrowing from everybody else. I think St. Paul at one stage laments, you know, um, the Jews look for miracles, the Greeks look for wisdom, and all we can offer is a crucified God, Hmm. you know, which, as he says, to uh, to the Jews is, is abhorrent and to the Greeks is madness, you know. But there is this this understanding that um, while these different belief systems were around, there were people who moved from one to the other and across. For example, one of the greatest early Christian writers is Justin Martyr, who was uh, started his life as a fully qualified philosopher within the Greek pagan tradition, and then in his search for truth, eventually became Christian and used his philosophical training to defend Christianity. Morescu comes at it from uh, a theory that's out there, which is what they call the maximal entheogenic theory, which is basically that all religions come out of an experience of transcendence, which probably comes through the conscious or perhaps unconscious use of psychedelics. Mm. And I have no doubts whatsoever that psychedelics can be used to access some of the higher uh, interior levels of mind and of um, even cosmic consciousness. Within the Christian tradition, however, there has always been a teaching that such substances should not be used because they bring people to experiences that either they are not ready for, or they, uh, there, there can be a difficulty telling the difference between the experience of transcendence that someone is going through and also what is being generated by their own unconscious. Mm. So from that point of view, there's a, um, a difficulty with it. In terms of the Eleusinian mysteries, the difficulty, and actually Josh goes into this as well in The Ecology of Souls, the difficulty with the Eleusinian mysteries is that we don't actually know what they were because that we have an idea. We, we know that there was some experience of transcendence generated within it, that there was probably something to do with a symbolic death or death experience, but they were so guarded 
that we so far don't actually have very much written down about what people actually went through in those mysteries. So a lot of it is supposition and I would say projection as well. Morescu centers his whole argument on this idea that the Bacchanal, um, which was the kind of celebration of Dionysius and Bacchus, was kind of went underground um, because the Roman emperors forbade it. And in some way, it made its way into the early Christian tradition and became the Eucharistic celebration. Now, the difficulty with that is that from the very earliest times of the Christian tradition, there is a very clear teaching as to what the Eucharist is and isn't. Going back to first century sources like Eusebius, like Irenaeus, um, like Justin Martyr, this is all within the first hundred years of Christianity, and it situates the Eucharist within the Passover Jewish tradition as not having anything to do. In fact, again and again, Eusebius, Irenaeus, etc., basically say, if you are participating in the Greek pagan meals or rites, you cannot participate in the Eucharist. And this was a tension for people because a lot of the, the civic religion, because the pagan religion was effectively civic within the Roman Empire at the time, demanded participation so as to be a good citizen of Rome. The Jews had traditionally a kind of a get out of jail yeah, clause. Yeah, yeah they, they were they, exempt. They weren't bound to that. Yeah, they were exempt for, for, from that. But once the Christians had been expelled from the synagogues and definitively the Jews were saying they are not now part of us, that's when persecution began and there was tension that began. In terms of women leading services, there is a, a lot of evidence that women had a far more important role in early Christianity than they would have had uh, into, what, I suppose, the third, fourth, fifth centuries on. Whether they were priestly roles is hugely debated. They were certainly deaconesses. There's no doubts about that at all. But whether they ever fulfilled the role of presbyter, by the time of about 90 to 100 AD, you, again, you have Irenaeus in his great text against the heresies, which is one of the earliest ones that actually describes the alternate rites of pagandom he is very clear that it was the teaching of the apostles that women were not to preside at the Eucharist. Now, whatever you think of that now, that's, but that was the teaching at the time, at least. <laughs> so what I would say is, look, it's, a, it's an interesting theory. It's one that does deserve to be looked at more. But I would have grave doubts about the leaps and the jumps that Murescu makes where there's nothing to support it. Um, and I think it's worth, whenever you get a new theory like that, read it absolutely, take it in, but then look at the historical work around it. It's like um, Graham Hancock at the moment and his kind of work around, you know, ancient archaeology and, and uh, astro-archaeology, etc. It's fascinating stuff. There's probably a lot of truth in it, but he makes huge jumps as well. And you just have to be aware of that. But my feeling on it, certainly within the monastic tradition that I'm part of, is that the entheogen idea has always been one that has been rejected as being something that doesn't help in terms of spiritual development in the long run, while it may help people uh, in terms of a healing end of things or in terms of integration. And I know there's huge work being done on psilocybin with regard to depression, which is fascinating, and it seems to be really helping people with regard yeah. to that. Yeah. And of course, the church would be all in favor of anything that's curative or healing. The danger is when we begin to lose 
the ability to discern what's coming from us and what's coming from the other. Zach is asking, when not spending your time in prayer and meditation or helping the needy, do you enjoy <laughs> watching films? Oh, that's all I do. <laughs> um, I, I wish it was all that I did. Of course, the cinema, I, I, I absolutely love the cinema. I love movies. The only thing I don't like is very heavy gore. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. again, purification of the imagination end of things, it's not something I want as part of me, inside of me. I am an absolute sucker for all of the kind of uh, Marvel movies, superhero movies, all of that. Um, I think I've mentioned before, my whole family is involved in the comic book industry. So as a result, it's something that, you know, has been part of us from the beginning. And uh, my brother actually has a podcast at the moment that he has started. He's a comic book writer, but he has started uh, interviewing comic writers about their favorite apocalypse. So that's out there at the moment. And anything to do with with that kind of stuff, yeah, I'm interested in. Before the pandemic, I used to try and get to the cinema at least once a week, once a fortnight if I could. Since the pandemic, I've been much slower Mm -hmm. to go into those crowds and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think it's really important to have things that ground us in the world and that also allow us to um, inhabit story. Yeah, a little escapism is is a good thing here and there. Absolutely, yeah. Zach also said, much love and Merry Christmas. So it's very nice of Zach. Oh, thank you, Zach. And right back at you. Kevin N. has uh, asked, there has been some hearty discussion regarding ritual magic and spirit binding with Octavian. Octavian has offered his opinion regarding the nature of this binding and the origin of the entities involved in the process. I would like to know if Brother Richard is familiar with these practices and his thoughts on the subject. We have talked about this behind the scenes, and this was not prompted by me. So this just came, this question just came naturally from Kevin. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And again, all respect to Octavian and to the path that he's walking. I suppose in terms of, oh, what would we call it? The solemn, the solemn magic path, the higher magic path, the people where, where people which involves the conjuration of spirits mm-hmm. and binding spirits and um, trying to get spirits to do your will, whether that's angels or demons or earth spirits or elementals or whatever it might be. One, I would be 100% against that methodology. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, I think it's a path that is really dangerous in terms of the egoic development of the individual. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't necessarily lead to, trans, to ego transcendence, but that it leads to a belief in one's own power and ability to control the spiritual world. And I don't think we ever control the spiritual world. Secondly, I would be very wary of conjuring or binding anything that I would consider to be a sentient individual. Effectively, these forms of magic are at the worst about enslavement and at the best about making something do your will. Yeah, or at co- least coercion. Yeah. Giving it something so that it does your will. Yeah. And to me, I, I think we need to move away from anything that is about coercion, enslaving, you know, forcing. And, and one of the things I, I know the def- one of the defense that is offered by those who practice these magical paths is that, well, these spirits aren't really sentient and they want to serve and they want. To, and all I would say, again, with great respect, but all I would say is that they are the exact same arguments that were given for the enslavement of human beings. Yeah, we were discussing it on the Strange Familiars Discord, and I said, hey, yeah. what if you just replace, you know, spirit with, uh, you know, person or, you know... Yeah, 
the first thing that people do when they want to impose or coerce upon the other, whether the other is human or animal or or, per, or, or spirit, is they make it less than. Yes. And I think we've got to be very careful of any language that makes it less than. The next point I would have against it is that the historicity and validity of many of these grimoires uh, while they go back a certain a certain way, we really don't know where they have come from. And I, I am aware of people who have thought that they have done everything right to have spirits bound, etc., and then discover that it has opened a world of trouble for them in other ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm fond of saying it's all good until it's not. Yeah. yeah. And the final thing I would say, which I think is... Actually, there's two, there's two things I would finish on, on this with. One is, I think you need to be very, very careful of, I think nowadays it's being, it's being sort of called the hitchhiker effect more than anything else. But uh, like read the lives of the magicians. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't go well at the end. I can't think of a single instance. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's one of the things uh, um, that I would be very wary of. The second thing I would say as well, I just want to phrase this correctly, is the grimoire tradition presumes a Judeo-Christian background, and it is using divine names and names of angels and spirits that are scripturally based, or at least Judeo-Christian tradition or Kabbalistically based. Yeah, sometimes the rituals are even used in the form of the Mass and so forth. Yeah. yeah, so that the person is in some way using what is considered to give them the authority to speak. More and more I'm seeing people who want to use the forms, but who profess to have no actual faith in the names or the divinity that's being invoked. And I'm telling you now, that is as dangerous as it is possible to get. And I don't speak this way normally in in terms of these conversations, Mm -hmm. but I would be really worried about anybody who decides to engage in this without really having the backup of a lived prayer faith practice that allows them to both separate themselves from it and to be protected, you know? Yeah. Anyway, now I'm not, there are certain, if you want to call them magical paths that I think can be appropriate within the realm of faith. A lot of the folk magic stuff is really prayer, you know, yeah. in another name. Yeah. And I think there is nothing to stop one's praying and invoking and inviting the intercession of angels. And as I mentioned before, getting our angels to speak to the spirits of the land or working with those kind of spirits. I have no issue with any of that at all. But I think when it's about human ego trying to force things to happen, it unsettles me. And I, I feel, I know of some of our brothers who have had to do major cleanup where these things have happened. I haven't personally myself, but I know of brothers that have had to, and some of their stories are are not good. Just another observation I've made, which is, you know, maybe lesser, but uh, I find it interesting to the point of almost humorous. There are a lot of faith put in these, you know, old grimoires, which may or may not go back as far as the Renaissance. Hmm because they're the the real thing i guess because they're older but they'll have things in like you know you need to use the blood of a virgin cat that was obtained under the full moon and a, a lot, i've noticed just a lot of these guys in the economy like wow you don't need that <laughs> you know? yeah, so, yeah. You, you can you can use something else you can use a incense or whatever you know it's interesting it's like so how important is following the the other thing that i've certainly noticed is that 
those who follow this path, and I mean follow it not just in an, in an intellectual sense, but in a, in a really practicing and doing the ceremonies, is that they often get really big effects at the start, and then more and more is needed and demanded to achieve the same levels. Hmm. And that's when it becomes really dangerous in that you can have a spirit that, for example, where you're told, oh, well, all they need is incense or all they need is attention or all they need is this particular crystal or that particular element or whatever. But the lesser spirits can become conduits through which the greater spirits begin to move. Uh, you'll often find this in hauntings, for example, where uh, it starts off with, oh, you know, we have a little kid ghost who wanders around and sure it's all fine and nice. And then suddenly it becomes darker and heavier. And what you find is that either something darker and heavier was masquerading as the little kid ghost or is now, because attention has come to the little kid ghost, is now using that as a conduit to receive energy itself. So, you know, just because you're calling on one particular thing doesn't mean that other things won't turn up. Right. So Katie says, I would love to hear Brother Richard's thoughts on St. Bridget. Okay, well, there's such confusion over St. Bridget. St. Bridget was a historical personage. She was a a princess of um, one of the local kings or local chieftains uh, living in Leinster, which is uh, around the Dublin area. She was named after the pagan goddess Bridget. um, So the pagan goddess, the Celtic goddess Bridget, was the goddess of the cattle, of the heart, of childbirth etc. So you have a historical personage who lived at a particular time, and then you have her being conflated in tradition with the pagan goddess she was named after. So the kind of patronages that the pagan goddess had were passed to Bridget the nun, Bridget the elder. And so Saint Bridget, uh, as one of the patrons of Ireland, is the patron of childbirth and of cattle and of the dairy and of beer, by the way, as well. I think in one of her famous songs or prayers, she prays for a lake of beer. So, you know, they were abstemious to an extent, but they were still Celts. So I think there can be confusion where people say, oh, you know, she wasn't a saint, she was a goddess. Or, oh, she wasn't a goddess, she was a saint. You're dealing with two different things, but conflated in the folk tradition, in the historical tradition. Um, And so she was known for the abbey at Kildare in Leinster, which was a dual abbey. So she was the eldest over an abbey that was both male and female, monks and nuns. They lived, uh, they lived separately but came together in the church for prayer, and she was the eldress over those. She was known for her tremendous charity towards the poor and her extraordinary gift of, of miracles and wonders. Now, what's happened over time is that a lot of the miracles and wonders that she worked, as well as being in the folk tradition, some of the tales and stories of Bridget the goddess then became conflated with stories of St. Bridget the Saint. So which were her historical miracles and which were to do with tales of the goddess? It's so mixed at this stage, you would never be able to kind of pull it apart. Mm -hmm. There is a very good book called, let me get this right now, Bridget 
the goddess and the saint. And if anybody really wants to read into the history of it fully, that's there. Over the last while, um, Bridget has been has, has sort of come back into full devotion again. But her feast day was the 1st of February, which was the Feast of Imbolc, uh, one of the big Celtic feasts of new birth, spring, the land opening up, sowing seeds, uh, and also a time when uh, the cattle were seen to be in calf. Um, and so Bridget was invoked for a lot of the, the kind of the safety and the protection of it. And one of the nicest traditions is what we call the Vatbrida, which is uh, um, Bridget's cloak. And so the night before her feast, so that would be the 31st of January, women particularly, men did it as well, but it was mostly women, would take flannel cloths uh, to bring up the flannel uh, once again, but would take flannel cloths and lay them on thorn bushes outside to soak up the dew. And it was believed that Bridget walked the land of Ireland the night before her feast and blessed the dew as it fell. And so those cloths would soak up the dew of, of Bridget and they would be kept in the house and they were used if people had headaches or throat problems or particularly for pregnant women who were in labor. They would wrap the vratrida around their stomach before they would uh, give birth to ask Bridget's blessing and protection for a safe birth. So she's one of the great ones. I, I have here, actually, let me just find it here. One of the prayers that were used for Bridget, if I can find it. And there's a wonderful little book called Celtic Prayers and Incantations, which goes right back to the very early days. And some of these are to do with Bridget and Patrick. So these are, these are one of the folk prayers for healing that were often used around these times. And this was a counter a counteraction prayer for the evil eye. So it's translated into English from the Gaelic. An eye covered thee, and a mouth spoke of thee, a heart envied thee, and a mind desired thee. Four made thee thy cross, man and wife, youth and maid. There will I send to thwart them, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit holy. I appeal to Mary, the aidful mother of men. I appeal to Bridget, the foster mother of Christ omnipotent. I appeal to Columba, the apostle of shore and sea, and I appeal to heaven, to all the saints and angels that be above. If it be a man that has done thee harm with evil eye, with evil wish, with evil passion, mayest thou cast off each ill, every malignity, every malice, every harassment, and mayest thou be well forever while this thread goes around thee in honour of God and of Jesus and of the spirit of Bam everlasting. And a red thread then of flannel would be bound around the hand of the person who was suffering from the evil eye. Absolutely interesting. Red thread big in Palel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It all goes back. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. There's some common origin there, you know, yeah, these ancient yeah. things. And especially the naming of the directions and the, the kind of the, the spitting of in, in various directions and things like that. And yeah, the, these were the, the cures that were that were there. Danny R. wants to hear you discuss the Celtic roots of Christmas traditions. And again, this might be a whole other show, but maybe briefly. I think we did this. Did we not do this last year? Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. we did. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of traditions, but I suppose the one that's my favorite, in turn, and I'll just speak of this one, maybe, in terms of the Celtic traditions, is the idea that, and again, it goes back to Bridget and, and to the cattle as well, is that if you could get close enough to animals without them noticing at midnight on Christmas Eve, as the bells rang, for a moment, the curse of Adam is reversed and we would hear the animals speak about the first Christmas. And if that was the case and you managed to hear them talk about Christmas, then you had the chance to ask the animals to foretell your future for, mm. the, for the year ahead. But if they noticed you at all, you were gone. There was no way you'd, you'd, you'd hear anything. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely Celtic idea, again, that, that 
we're sort of um, the curse of Adam is reversed at that moment and that we get to be one with all of creation in that moment again. Very similar local Pennsylvania tradition as well. I think it was much simpler. I think he just said if you were at midnight on Christmas Eve, you could hear the animal speaking, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Valentina asks, Hi, Brother Richard. Would love to hear your take regarding the saints who, re- who were removed during Vatican II. Example, St. Christopher. <laughs> when I was confirmed in 1999, I was allowed to take Ursula Cecilia as my name. I understand the reasoning behind mo- removing saints who don't have enough evidence, but I'm curious as to the general attitude of the church regarding people's continued veneration of these saints. Thank you for your guidance and wishing you a lovely Advent. Okay, it's one of the great, great misunderstandings. <laughs> they were not removed. They were never taken away. They are still saints. What happened was the simplification of the calendar to allow more modern saints to come in in terms of feasts, because obviously with each succeeding generation, there are more saints, Mm. thankfully. So what they did at one stage was they took a lot of the early saints, the early Roman saints, and they were all combined under one feast day, which is the martyrs of the Church of Rome. So Cecilia, Philomena, Christopher, etc., they all went in under that feast now, and they are remembered canonically at that time. But they were never deposed. They weren't kind of uncanonized or anything like that. Uh, I think that because the feasts weren't celebrated after that, people felt that, oh, they must have been demoted in some way. But following the feast of St. Peter and Paul in June, we have the feast of all the martyrs of Rome. And that's where all of those early saints are now kind of gathered together in that particular filing cabinet, if you like. So uh, while there are some early saints that the church would say um, they were saints by virtue of um, common veneration, but we have no information about them other than they were venerated at this time. We, we, we say that clearly about some of them. Mm-hmm. And you would say maybe there were later traditions. So like a lot of the traditions around Christopher are later medieval accretions. Right. We, we just simply don't know a lot about him. And they seem to have made up a lot of the stories based on a literal translation of his name, Christopher, the Christ bearer. So you get all that thing of him carrying you know, Jesus on his shoulders and being a giant and all of that kind of stuff. And that may have been true, but we just don't have historical records for it. Um, So the most we can say is there was a Christopher who lived and he was considered holy enough to be venerated as a saint. And we still venerate him to this day as a saint under the bracket of a martyr of the Church of Rome. So Will H., we really kind of covered this before, but just to give him the props here, he said he wouldn't know what you think on psychedelics in relation to the mystical experience in Christianity. We pretty much covered Mm. that with John's question. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I suppose just to say, I'm not saying that an experience had through psychedelics is not a genuine spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it may very well be. But the difficulty is we just don't know what's a mental uh, artifact within that experience. Yeah. Lynette L. is asking, uh, within the Old Testament, God is referred to as a jealous God. The term feels Uh wrong because he is an all-loving God and shouldn't possess this human trait. Is this a translation error? Um, It's a linguistic error. So when we translate it as a jealous God, it is the old meaning of the word jealous, which isn't jealousy as we understand it in that kind of comparative envy, but it is jealous, meaning um, the the word zeal and the word jealousy come from the same place, zealous and jealous. Ah. And so the idea is to be zealous for his people. He is the one who is always acting on his people's behalf. And it comes from the Hebrew word kwana, which is Q-A-N-N-A, roughly in anglicized Roman script. But it means to be zealous on behalf of, to be the one who is always acting on behalf of his people. 
Lisa R. states, Hello, Brother Richard and Timothy. So many cultures, traditions, and belief systems tell of an awakening that humanity will experience. Many state we have entered the beginning of this awakening. What are your thoughts on an awakening of and within the human species? Well, uh, if you take it as the Christian mystical tradition, we believe that the awakening has already taken place with the incarnation when divinity and humanity became one again. However, the awakening has to take place. uh, uh, That was the general awakening of all humankind for all time. But each individual human person has to embrace that and invite that to take place within themselves. Emily T. says she was incredibly moved by your poem that was read at the end of the episode, the Halloween episode we did with Monster Fuzz. Uh She says, I believe it was called All Hallows Eve. Mm-hmm. Reminded very much of my own grandmother who passed, passed away in 2021. And she wants to know if you have a book of poetry that you've put together. And if so, where is it available for sale? Now, there is some poetry in still points. There is indeed, in, in, including that poem. I don't have a book of poetry out, but most of my poetry is on my Facebook and Instagram accounts. So if she wants to trawl through those for some of the poems. She's more than welcome to do so. It's all there and, and feel free to copy it or use it or I suppose share it with anybody you wish. Your most famous poem is the poem written right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, the lockdown one. Yeah, that yeah. was the one that kind of went viral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think you'll ever meet the uh, popularity of that one? I hope not. It was scary. <laughs> really, um, was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just, oh my goodness, it was just being inundated for days and months and weeks and there's still stuff going on you know with it out there it's extraordinary the university of minnesota one of their ladies there um music wrote a kind of a miniature oratorio piece based on the poem and it won a big award recently so yeah it's called um if people want to listen to it it's called across the empty squares and that's based on the the poem oh Um, wonderful so she sent me out of the blues and you know, she had asked permission and all that to use it. And of course, there was no problem. But she sent a video of the choir rehearsing the piece. And it was quite something to hear a full choir and orchestra oh, wow. singing the words that had come to me through lockdown. So, um, yeah, those kind of moments have been breathtaking, just seeing it go off and, and achieve all these things. That's wonderful. So you kind of put it out there and it took a life of its own, really. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about a tulpa. <laughs> yeah. Amy B. says, Greetings, Brother Richard. It's always wonderful when you join Timothy. What are your thoughts on the idea that the divine uses physiological dysfunctions, specifically neurological, to send mystics messages and visions? Examples of this phenomenon might be St. Gemma following her bout of meningitis, Hildegard von Bingen's severe migraines, and Kundalini syndrome. Accounts of these types of experiences range from transcendent to terrifying, also pointing to potential brain crisis-type symptoms. Yeah, I think our bodily element is definitely used and isn't bypassed by the divine. Our particular context, whatever we're bearing within ourselves, whatever is encoded within us, all of that is used. There's no doubt that certainly some of the manifestations, say, for example, with Hildegard, seem to be very akin to the kind of migraine auras that people go through. But then people who go through migraine auras don't necessarily receive great celestial and cosmic secrets when they're going through a migraine. I know I don't, definitely (laughs) don't. So, yeah, I think whatever we have is used, and I think that's effectively what the incarnation is, that the divine word unites itself with human nature, and human nature in all of its brokenness and just basic humanity 
becomes a conduit for grace into the world. There's a lovely, well, it's, it's always very profound to me, when the Shroud of Turin was being examined by a surgeon some years ago, Dr. Pierre Barbet, who was one of the top surgeons in Paris, he wrote a very interesting book called The Surgeon Looks at the Shroud of Turin. And again, he doesn't make any statement that this is the Shroud of Jesus, because we can't make that statement. We don't know that. But the most we can say is it's certainly a depiction of someone who went through the same, the same experience of death that Jesus would have gone through, through Roman crucifixion. Whether you think it's fake, whether you think it's uh, an interesting impression, whether you think it's a visionary, you know, a, um, a kind of a divine apport, whatever you want to call it, that's the image it bears. And the surgeon thought it was worth looking at. And one of the things he noticed was that he expected the body of the Christ to be this perfect example of perfect humanity, you know. And what he noticed was there was a severe distension on the right shoulder blade, I think it was. I think it's the right shoulder blade. And they put it down to carrying the cross. They put it down to injuries that the person might have received through the scourging or whatever. But he still wasn't happy with it because it seemed to be an old injury, you know, something built up over time. And he couldn't equate this with, you know, how could Jesus, who's supposed to be perfect humanity as well as being perfect God, how could he have, you know, one shoulder bigger than the other? And it was years before a carpenter wrote to him and said, I know what that is. That's what you get from years and years of working the plane. Mm -hmm. And it was such a beautiful revelation for him because it was like, well, of course, for 30 years, he was a carpenter, you know? So, of course, he bore the image of human labor in his body. And there's something really wonderful about thinking of the Christ as someone who knew, you know, our work in the world. Just, you know, very often the images, whether icons or even worse, those horrible, you know, sweet and white images of the kind of saccharine religious imagery that, that's out there that sort of makes him look as though, you know, he, he, he never experienced mud, let alone rain or yeah. anything like that. He looks like a perfectly quaffed 1970s <laughs> absolutely, rock absolutely, singer or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was a man who was a man. And who the, the, the scriptures describe when they, when they call him a carpenter, we translate it as carpenter, but they use the Greek word tecton, which is a master carpenter, having learned from his foster father, Joseph. So, of course, he would bear in his body the injuries of work. And I think that's what this question reminds me of, is, of course, anything that is you will be used. All right. That's the end of our questions. So that was a marathon <laughs> session. Thank you so much, Brother Richard. I hope Richard. I passed. <laughs> oh, I'll give you an A+. Plus. You did great. Right. You're very kind. All Thank right. You. Thank you so much. And You are more than welcome. I hope we talk before Christmas. But in the meantime, every good wish and blessing, as always, to yourself and Alison and to the, the twins as well. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. All right, Allison, what is this awesome thing? <laughs> oh, it's me. <laughs> no, it's this week's Curiosity of the Week is probably one of the most beautiful morning memorial-related things, tiny things that I've ever had. It is um, black and gold memorial little card that opens, but it's unlike any kind I've seen before. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen just the plain cards. Yeah. And in fact, the one you had for... Jenny Beam, yeah. Jenny Beam was just a, a playing card with the black border, right? Yeah, it's kind of like the interior of this, but this is like a little card that actually opens. 
It's about the size of kind of like an oversized business card. It's embossed on the front. In black and gold, and it's just, I mean, it's aesthetically really beautiful. It says, uh, they will be done on the front. You open up, it says, though lost to sight to memory dear, in affectionate remembrance of James Whiteman, who died September 4th, 1904, aged 36 years, interred at Oxbridge Lane Cemetery, September 8th, 1904. Did you look him up? Why didn't I? (laughs) I was going to say, I'm surprised that you didn't. I'm also curious as to where Oxbridge Lane Cemetery is. I'm wondering now if perhaps this is not American. Yeah, it might not be. I will find out. Okay. Not before the end of the show, but I will find out. (laughs) It even has gilt edges on the top, which are... um, Look, not only are they gilt, but they're actually... There's like a design pressed into the side. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that is... Is what the kids used to say as extra. That is attention to detail. Yeah. Wow. Make me a business card like that. (laughs) Kind that are so expensive you don't want to give them out. Yeah, exactly. All right. This morning card will be our curiosity of the week. I'll put an image of it in the show notes. If you click on that, it should take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase that and other curiosities of the week. While you're at Etsy, check out my books. Still a couple days left to order books and get remark sketches in them. Purchase any one of my books, and I'll put a remark sketch in along with my signature until the new year. Also at Etsy, we have t-shirts, Strange Familiars t-shirts, Glow in the Dark, and the classic blue Awoken Tree. We have Strange Familiars patches, stickers. Allison has quite a few antique photographs up there, artwork, originals and prints, and much more. Check it out. Our Etsy shop name is Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up. While you're on Etsy, make sure to check out Chad Shop, Ruck Rabbit Outdoors, and our friends at Karmic Garden as well. Anything else new, Allison? No, sir. (laughs) All right. That's it for this week. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can join the Strange Familiars gathering group there. We're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, one word. And you can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.